x-rays or MRIs of arthritic hips and knees, the radiographic sort of grading of how damaged that looks has absolutely no relationship to the pain. Let's just fix the thing that caused it in the first place and the chronic pain will go away because that's the model if it's a symptom. Well, that model has failed us spectacularly. Hi there, I'm Alex von Klimper and this is CortexCast, the podcast bringing you discussions with some of the most interesting researchers in neuroscience today. We'll be exploring the full spectrum of neuroscience, from cognitive behavioral research to cutting-edge molecular and transgenic techniques. We also want to explore how these researchers think about the brain and what really drives them to ask the questions that they do. If you're interested in Cortex, then this is the cast for you. Cortexcast is the official podcast of the Cortex Club, an Oxford University student-run society which connects Oxford students and researchers with world-leading neuroscientists. Researchers are provided a forum ranging from small, intense debates to large discussion sessions, usually followed by drinks with the students at the pub. If you'd like to know more about Cortex Club, including some of our past speakers, you can head to our website, cortexclub.com. Before we jump into it, I'd like to just ask the following. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe or like this episode or leave a comment. If you love the show, tell us what you love about it. And if it isn't working for you, then let us know what you really didn't like about it. I'm Paula Kanders, and in this episode of CortexCast, Alex and Lucas sit down with Professor Irene Tracy, who is a pioneer in the study of acute and chronic pain. She helped establish the Oxford Center for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain, directed for 10 years before becoming head of the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences. At the start of this academic year, she took up the position of warden of Merton College. I really loved listening to Alex and Lucas's discussion with her, speaking about her unique career path, her work on pain, and other more recent projects. Because of the great quality and impact of her work, and her strong leadership in the field of neuroscience, She's a great role model for junior scientists like ourselves. As this is a slightly longer episode than usual, let's get straight to it. I'm Alex von Klemperer. I'm here with Lucas, who's going to be co-hosting today, and we're lucky enough to interview Prof. Irene Tracy, who heads up the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences up at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford here. Um, And we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, Irene Tracy's life in science, as well as her interest, which has been most notable in the field of pain. And Mm -hmm. so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So just to sort of kick off, Mm -hmm. why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Mm -hmm. Um, We like to start with just having a little bit of understanding of how you got into science and yep. in particular how you got into neuroscience. Sure. So if you want to just kind of kick off and Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, firstly, let me say it's great to be here uh, and uh, it's a real pleasure and I think this is a great idea uh, to do these interviews. It's nice for us to have the opportunity to talk a little bit more informally about our journey. Uh, so I hope this is of interest to the listeners. Um, so I was always, you know, from a young child, uh, a curious sort of person and probably a bit of a nuisance for my siblings and uh, friends in terms of being questioning and probing. Uh, and having the luxury that you know I had older siblings who could answer questions so that sort of curiosity and that level of attention to detail was something I just was born with 
um, and that of course throughout the school life manifested as being you know good at science and interested in science although I was equally interested in humanities too but back in my day you know I'm 52 now so when I was a schoolgirl, if you were a girl and you were good at science you definitely got shepherded in that direction which suited me so um, leaving school I was sort of very heavily in the the maths the further maths the physics and chemistry that was actually where I was strongest um, and oddly maybe I went down a biochemistry route for my first degree um, and that was a combination that my chemistry teacher had done it I never even knew what the subject was uh, he spoke about it with such excitement I was very interested in how you could understand the mechanisms of things that go wrong in the body but I was really clear I didn't want to be a doctor because um, that was sort of the obvious other route and didn't want that as a job uh, and did a little bit of work experience in the two formats uh, working in the hospital and then working in a lab and just realised no the lab is for me I want to be actually discovering stuff uh, and don't really have a vocation for curing people so that was the decision was to sort of try and pick a degree which I could um, harness what I was good at in terms of you know the physical method side of things the sciences but try and understand mechanistically what was going on behind the scenes so that was sort of my uh, journey a little bit from childhood through to uh, starting my degree. So you started with a degree in biochemistry and now you're a neuroscientist researching the neurobiology of pain. How did your uh, interest develop yeah, into a, it's a clinical neuroscience question? It's a great question, Lucas, because it's not an obvious journey. Because I think the one thing that was unusual about the biochemistry degree was it's a four-year degree, you, you get to you know learn an awful lot, but you don't actually get any neuroscience. And again, you have to sort of go back 30-odd years. You know, neuroscience didn't exist as a standalone subject. It was very much in the realms of either in clinical medicine under psychiatry or was in psychology. Um, so the whole sort of cognitive neuroscience, you know, wasn't necessarily, you know, that was growing. And certainly there was no basic neuroscience. So, um, you, you know, you have this sort of window on how things work. And uh, this sort of journey towards sort of neuroscience really came about through my doctorate, which I... Uh, did a doctorate in using these magnetic resonance imaging methods. At that time, there was no imaging, it was spectroscopy. So this was exciting. It was an undergraduate lecture by George Rada, uh, who's been a real mentor to me, and he really started in the world the whole concept of using these big magnets to look at biological data. So he was giving us a lecture. That was the great thing about being here, is you get these amazing professors teach you. And um, it just blew me away that there were these techniques that could actually look at the biological tissue and measure things in vivo, in the living, without having to put it in a test tube, work out what's going on, and then try and interpret what was happening in the body. You could just see it. So that was hugely exciting. So I chose to do my um, fourth year project in his lab and then my doctorate subsequently with him. And that was an opportunity where I could sort of really go back to using some of the more physical strengths that I had in sort of physics and, and maths a little bit with this technique but applying it very much to these biological problems but his group was very much all about sort of cardiac and muscle so I was working on muscle disease um, and it just was one of those again you know I think for most scientists serendipity uh, occurs that the particular condition I was looking at which is Duchenne muscular dystrophy a devastating muscle disorder so obviously mostly focusing on the muscles, um, but the gene is also not expressed in the brain tissue. And so those are the two main organs that were affected. So I said to George, you know, could I have a look at the brains? Because that's the next organ that is, you know, not expressing the dystrophin. And it would be interesting to know what consequence 
not having that protein was in the brain. And um, you know, being a great supervisor as he was, he said, sure, you know, even though we don't do anything like that, you know, I happen to have a retired a paediatric neurologist from America here in the group and he can teach you about the brain. So I got really lucky that you know I had that that opportunity which I think is a, a lesson for any mentor you know to give your students the opportunity to follow what they're excited and curious about and had just that good fortune that you know there was somebody in the lab at that time on sabbatical here who knew an awful lot about neuroscience and the brain. He taught me how to you know examine the brains, how to uh, dissect them uh, and, and a little bit and that just absolutely stoked my excitement around the brain and neuroscience and realizing you know this these techniques were really good for it um, and neuroscience was sort of this exciting new area that also on an international level you could see was just taking off so for me it was you know clear decision you know if I'm going to stay in science I want to be a neuroscientist so and and then apply these techniques so although I'd you know, had a, a, maybe a training that wasn't in neuroscience, um, and I'd worked on many different sort of conditions throughout my doctorate. The techniques that I had worked on were sort of the consistent theme that you know these were methods that you know I could apply to the problem of neuroscience. The bit I needed to fill in my postdoc was a lab that was willing to take me on and teach me a lot more neuroscience, so that I could have the two meet each other, and that's what drew me to doing a postdoc in the states. So you did your postdoc in the states. Um, and started to do functional brain imaging. Um, what got you interested in the study of pain? That was again a sort of you know slight sort of serendipity. So I went to the states, had an absolutely amazing time. You know in America, you know I advise anybody who gets the opportunity to go abroad, you know for their, uh, a period of their scientific career, it's a great thing to do. Um, and so in that lab, which was the lab that had um, you know really pioneered functional imaging so they had done the first few experiments this is a lab led by Bruce Rosen and Tom Brady and you had people like Jack Beliveau and Ken Kwong so these were some of the leading people who were doing these very first experiments in humans the concept had been developed actually in biochemistry here in Oxford back in the 70s that you could get this susceptibility change when blood changes its oxygenation level that was sort of understood but in a test tube and then there was work done preclinically to say it's sort of possible but the real experiments to do it in humans was done in that lab and that was what drew me to go and to that lab I had an offers from a few different places to go to but I chose that lab because I wanted to learn this functional imaging technique and they wanted to learn spectroscopy which I was really good at so that was sort of the quid pro quo I, I could bring spectroscopy to them and set up and teach them spectroscopy I could learn functional imaging but again the disease areas I was working on uh, were different it was in HIV and AIDS dementia so it was again applying methods like spectroscopy like functional imaging but to you know a condition which you know, it was a, a new condition again from the, the muscle disease Duchenne I'd worked on, but was also a condition where this principle of measuring things before you can pick things up behaviourally or clinically was the strength of those methods. And that really attracted me that, you know, there, by the time you can measure things, particularly in, I think, neurological conditions, behaviourally, often it's a bit too late. So to have these sort of biomarkers from these imaging methods, it could tell you something's not right, something's going wrong mechanistically, well before you'd see that manifest behaviourally, you know, again, it's common parlance now, but back then that was, you know, still new because we didn't really have anything to do that. So that was the excitement around that technique. So I didn't really mind what I was applying it to because the principle was I was interested in. And then throughout that two-year postdoc, as one does, you know, you're in this amazing big lab with loads of different people working in different areas, got chatting to people from the pain clinic and started to hear about, you know, the problems of pain and this mystery subjective thing that there's just no way of knowing what on earth is going on apart from what the person tells you and that's not adequate often. 
And it just, you know, hit me literally like a sort of bolt of lightning that, my goodness, this technique is perfect for this condition because this technique really can give you that, you know, information objectively about something that's quite complex, that's highly private and highly subjective. So chance meeting, chance discussion, realisation that, you know, these areas I was working in at this point, I'm coming back to Oxford to help set up the imaging centre. There's not a big... HIV AIDS community in, in Oxford at that time um, so knowing, knowing that you know there's have to be sort of settled now on an area that would be something I'd really get my teeth into and that last sort of half year of my postdoc in the States really consolidated in my mind through those conversations and a couple of early experiments that this was the area that would be you know really well suited in terms of ticking all the things I was looking for out of a scientific mm-hmm. life you know something that was you know, translational, you know, that was relevant, that could benefit patients, something that had really interesting, basic, mechanistic questions that we just, everything we discovered was new and groundbreaking, um, had philosophical elements to it, you know, it just had everything in it, um, which is quite unusual, actually, I think, very lucky, really, in that regard. So for me, you could just see, you know, here's a great technique that really this field needs. This field's got so many unanswered questions. I mean, literally, everything was to discover. Um, and timing seemed to be right, so I went for it. CortexCast is only made possible through the generous support of the British Neuroscience Association, we are also supported by Oxford Neuroscience Departments. To find out more about our sponsors, including the full list of Oxford academic departments which support our work, check out our website at cortexclub.com. I guess that, that makes quite a nice segue to start to talk a little bit about pain because that's obviously mm. what you're best known for is all your work on pain. But it's quite interesting because it seems to be an almost ubiquitous process and everyone kind of describes it differently. So I'm kind of curious to know, how would you either describe or define pain? Yeah, so there, I mean, we have a formal definition, which the sort of overarching society that you know uh, brings all the different pain researchers and clinicians together globally it's called the international association for the study of pain or iasp and um, and they basically set the sort of stage for the terminology of all the different conditions which fall under pain yeah um, you know your your sort of musculoskeletal pain conditions like rheumatoid arthritis osteo your nerve injury models uh, you know that would be you know multiple sclerosis or, or injuring a nerve or phantom limb pain and then the functional like fibromyalgia irritable bowel syndrome so that organization for all these different conditions that fall under those different categories of sadly people who have chronic pain you know there's very precise definitions when you sort of go up and up and up and have the sort of helicopter view of pain as a single word then the definition you know which is a definition it's one that evolves all the time is you know an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage and what's really clever about that definition which I support and that's how I would describe it um, is that it allows for lots of things it's actually a very um, deeply thought out definition sometimes you know it's quite nuanced it is because what it what it you know when you look sort of behind the scenes of that definition what it shows you is that you know it's not just a sensory experience it is the sensory and emotional 
And it doesn't have to be associated with tissue damage. Just the potential of tissue damage is sufficient because pain is this thing that only exists the moment the brain actually constructs the experience. Up until then, it's what we call nociception. So this idea that, you know, we're very comfortable with, because that's normally the case, that there's an evident piece of damaged body and that sends signals in to say, I'm hurt do something about it. That sort of simplistic, if you like, medical model of injury equals pain um, doesn't really account for most pain that one deals with. Even in uh, everyday healthy acute pain, there can be a lot of non-linearity between that relationship. There can even be absolutely no tissue damage coming in, but the brain switching on certain regions that will give people an experience that is unpleasant and aversive akin to physical, say, burn or injury. So that definition you know, really, it's quite long wordy in terms of a couple of sentences, but it encapsulates what we understand about this complex thing. So even though we have this short little word, pain, you know, is so many different things, even though, you know, it's not this binary thing. You mentioned that there's healthy acute pain. So I guess there's also an unhealthy pain. um, And your research is focused on chronic pain. Mm -hmm. What distinguishes the two types of pain? Yeah, so that's something really important to um, explain. So we have this one word, pain, um, but we, again, break that down into acute pain and chronic pain. So acute pain is your, I call it everyday. It's your good pain. Um, so it's the pain that, you know, um, you might experience by just having a simple cut or a, a brief sports injury, going to the dentist, having a tooth pulled. It might last for a few days. You might have a headache. You know, this is all the sort of everyday acute pain. And it's there to tell you something's gone wrong you need to make a decision as to what to do with it. So it it drives uh, you to attend to it and to make a decision and then to act. And generally that pain will go away, either within minutes or within hours or within a couple of days or within a few months. If it doesn't go away by sort of month three or four, which is around the normal amount of time, as you would both know, um, uh, that tissue should really be healed. If the pain's still there, then we define that as now you're in a chronic pain state. And that's the sort of dark side. That's the bad pain. That's the pain you don't want. And that's the pain that, you know, is this huge medical health problem. You know, in fact, it's the biggest medical health problem in the developed world. So one in five of the adult population have chronic pain. Um, you know, the, the devastation it causes in terms of, um, you know, people's breakdown in, uh, you know, their ability to work and contribute to society in that way, their mood in terms of anxiety and depression, uh, the way it breaks down often the family structure and then just the sheer cost of it you know so the treatment and management of it and people not coming to work is a, about 200 billion euros per annum in Europe about 600 billion dollars in the states and this is big money on sort of health economics so it's this huge problem um, and that's sort of even though a lot of the imaging work in the first you know 15 years was focusing on acute pain because they're easy experiments to do on healthy students like yourselves you put them in and we burn you acutely and physically on off on off just to understand how on earth does the brain even put that together so a lot of the early work was just to understand good healthy pain and that's a sensible approach i would say for any disease that you want to look at because you need to understand how it normally works if you're going to understand how it's broken And, you know, at this point, when we started out, we knew nothing really about it in terms of the central representation. Lots known about, you know, receptors and nerve fibres and how signals are transduced and transmitted. But the perception bit was unknown. So starting with some just really straightforward experiments where we literally just burnt or electrocuted or poked or prodded people. And then we 
did that in different contexts to show how if we give you the same stimulus, but we change the context or your expectation or make you anxious or make you sad or make you happy or have you attend or not attend, that changes the way you perceive that stimulus, even though it's the same stimulus. And then the imaging can tell us how. How mechanistically does attention make it worse? How does anxiety turn up the volume? How is it that when you're happy and distracted, it doesn't hurt? What are the mechanisms that the brain's using to dampen down those nociceptor signals? So those are all, you know, the, the array of experiments we did in the first sort of 10, 15 years was to get a really good solid understanding of acute pain and how that can be modulated by these things that only the brain can do, like your mood and your cognitive states and, your con- and the context in which you're experiencing it. And on that footing, the last decade, we've now switched to then say, right, let's attack chronic pain and let's find out now where these things have gone wrong. Um, and that's still a, very much works in progress. But, you know, I think we've made some, you know, good contributions to, you know, proving that there is this highly nonlinear relationship between the damage and the perception. And that's very important. Um, I think imaging, separate to all the different sub-mechanisms we've worked out, I think just that principle alone that has shown because a picture sort of is so believable, (laughs) because it's physiology, that when somebody says it hurts more because they're more anxious or they're attending to it or they're more worried about it, uh, it really does amplify the processing. It doesn't just change the way they're going to describe the experience. It actually, through mechanisms of attention and mood, it really alters the way those signals are processed in the brain and that changes the experience because Mm. that's the experience you're having. That was suspected... But how would you know? Because all you've got is the person's report when they're depressed saying it hurts more. You think, well, you're bound to say it it hurts more because you're more depressed and everything's more negative. But to prove that, no, 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 when they say it hurts more, there's more lights on. And this is how it's turned up was really key to prove. And that's a lot of what we did in those early years was just prove with the physiology of the pictures (laughs) that this changes things inside the head. And that is no different than just having more tissue damage. So in terms of how important that was for patients, for say clinical psychologists trying to you know manage chronic pain patients to get them you know to understand that these things can play out in very negative ways and you know to more broadly educate society and the medical profession you know that was very important um, because imaging can be very persuasive as a medium and then sort of you know the next piece is then to really get a little bit more under the bonnet under the bonnet under the bonnet to find out right what precise mechanisms and where are things really being amplified because that's what you want to target to switch off and and even just stop it transiting to that place. Do we have a a kind of simple MRI or fMRI signature for pain or even chronic pain? Um, Can you just simplistically look at an fMRI of a patient and say this person is in chronic pain or this person is in pain? Not, no, not yet. Because again, it goes back to that sort of definition of pain. It's not this simple unitary thing. So even if I took you, not even in chronic pain with lots of things having gone wrong and gave you the same, say, you know, 50 degree, three second burn, um, if I change the way I'm distracting you or whatever, I can make that same stimulus feel very differently. And so that, you know, pain has this one word is all these different, you know, 
features to it. Um, and so when you go into the chronic pain, to say that there's a picture that just says, oh, this is pain and this is not, sadly, it's not as simple as that because it's not as binary as that. It's not like a switch that's on off. Yeah. Um, you know, so what you could do, so the way I always describe this, and, and this is relevant for, you know, uh, you know, some of the work that I do educating, um, say, the legal profession around what we know about pain now in the 21st century and how maybe some of these techniques eventually might be helpful you know, not just translated to the clinic or for drug discovery, but also in courts of law, where pain is a big, a big issue for them, um, is it, you know, you are not going to with these imaging or functional signatures, seeing all these lights on, you know, that is an objective measure. And what you can't ever do is objectify a subjective experience. That's just, you know, that's just inconsistent in its logic. Um, so you'll never objectify a subjective experience. What you will be able to do with these techniques, and I am a big believer of this, is through these objective measures, better understand and explain why that person's subjective experience is the way it is. And that's really valuable. And so that's what we're doing. I call it sort of, you know, behind the scenes or under the bonnet. You're you're building up this picture, which might be not just a functional readout, it might be some spectroscopy, it might be some structural wiring, it might be a whole different suite of physiological metrics that we can get now using our imaging techniques of the human brain. How is it wired up? How is its structure? How is its neurochemistry? How is it functionally reacting? How healthy are some of the conversations that the networks in the brain, how well are they working? And by taking all these different types of um, what we call acquisitions, we can build up this really, you know, quite comprehensive physiological window into the brain of a patient and then link that to how they're describing their pain this morning or this afternoon, which will again vary for them, and help demystify why it is the way it is, particularly in the context of relevant or relative to what the originating cause is, the extent of damage. Because again, in chronic pain, this non-linearity becomes really extreme. And that's a real problem because you get all these mismatches. You know, a classic one would be, you know, we absolutely know working with my orthopedic colleagues that although we still continue to do it, you know, x-rays or MRIs of arthritic hips and knees, the radiographic sort of grading of how, you know, damaged that looks has absolutely no relationship to the pain. Um, and so it's meaningless as a measure of, you know, pain because it's, it's just too complex. Uh, there's such a journey from where it's injured to the brain with all sorts of places where things have been turned up and turned down and rerouted. You can't possibly make a judgment about what a person's pain is based on what you see. So what the imaging will offer is a sort of decoding, if you like, a little bit about, right, well, you know, yes, there's not much probably coming in. So whatever you've done to dampen things down out there in the periphery, largely working. But this person still is in a lot of pain and they've got lots of areas of the brain on because actually for them, the anxiety, the expectation, the, the learnt behaviour of every time I move, it hurts. You know, the more we think about a Bayesian brain and priors and sort of always expecting something, you know, you hardwire on. So even if there might not be a signal, you're going to switch on the circuit and you're going to have an experience. So, again, that's what we can do is sort of help um, decode that. Um, you know, and it, you know, it would be lovely. And a lot of people ask me that question you've asked me, you know, particularly the lawyers, you know, can we just put them in and yes, no, yeah. or they're in this much, they're in that much. Um, you know, it, it will be useful for these situations, but it needs to be used in a slightly different way. You've mentioned the fact that um, sometimes, particularly in the context of 
of chronic pain, um, what we see in terms of the actual damage or the injury is not at all correlated with the 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 amount of pain that the person's feeling. Yeah. Could, it could be true that in the context of, if someone weren't in the context of chronic pain, these sort of stimuli that wouldn't cause them pain are now all of a sudden starting to cause them pain because their brain has been rewired in, in effect or it's it's been conditioned in this way and networks have been activated that they're anticipating pain. So these, these stimuli have different sensations associated yeah that's right so that's, that's absolutely what happens um so you have that which is a sort of slightly more complex one though where there really is a dissociation between the sort of nociceptive transduction bit at the injury and the perception that maybe there's none there but they've just so learned that this movement or this particular pro you know um context in which i'm experiencing it produces pain that it's going to take a while to unlearn that but more often than not there is some input coming in and of course there are processes you know even though I work in the central nervous system you know I'm a big believer that for a lot of chronic pain that is you know most of it maintained by peripheral input which is required to maintain all these central amplification problems if you can just stop that signal coming in the rest will settle I'm a I've got no proof that that's true because we're not very good at treating chronic pain yet but that would be the hypothesis just because of the beautiful plasticity that the central nervous system will have that I think if you could really take out the originator that might now be quite low compared to what it was at the start um, all that excessive amplification problems and rewiring would resettle itself maybe not in a very old person's brain because it's less plastic but for most people that would be what you would hypothesize the other thing to say is that when when you know the periphery is you know obviously damaged and they're sending signals in there's also changes right there again and there's changes also at the entry point into the spinal cord where for pain it makes its first order synapse with its second order neuron so these are two very key junctions um, where again mechanisms um, you know epigenetic changes cellular you know molecular changes occur that produce classic symptoms that patients would describe um, things like allodynia where a normally a, a non non painful or non noxious input like just touching uh, so an A-beta input now is encoded as burning burning pain or their clothes touching their areas of skin or their bed sheets at night cause excruciating pain. So this is a process that's called allodynia. It's pain to a non-painful stimulus or hyperalgesia, more pain to a painful stimulus. And, and again, patients, particularly with neuropathic or nerve injury pain, have these as symptoms. And, and that mechanism is very much you know in the periphery and in the spinal cord with contributions from top-down systems as well. So it's not just to say that all these things that make it non-linear only occur in the brain. Uh, certainly things also start to ramp up right at the starting point as well in that transition to chronic pain. So you mentioned that we are not really good in treating chronic pain yet, but I know that your research group and many of your colleagues are working on new treatment strategies. Now you just mentioned that some of these pain suppressing systems are um, are not very active in chronic pain patients and other systems are upregulated. So are there ways um, with modern brain stimulation methods mm -hmm. to readjust these systems? Yeah, I'm delighted you asked that question, <laughs> Lucas. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. So, so, you know, a lot of the drugs, maybe just before I answer the brain stimulation question and, and, and what that experiment was, was targeting, um, and, and also just my thoughts on how much more we could be doing with alternative techniques to alleviate pain. Probably helpful for the listener just to know that, you know, this enormous number of people who've got chronic pain, sadly, all the current mainstream drugs we have to treat it, drugs being the main way people are treated with conditions, um, uh, largely don't work. So for 65% of the patients, they get no efficacy. And for the 35 that do, 
they're just having the edge taken off their pain. It's not taking it away completely. And that's, um, it's a, you know, could spend the whole talk describing all the reasons for that. There's a whole set of reasons why that's uh, the case. Um, a couple of the big ones are some of the, um, well, all the drugs have been just discovered serendipitously. So the drugs we commonly use were discovered by really good clinicians who on the bedside realised, you know, anti-epileptics that suppress neural activity. Let's see if we can just calm things down in the brain. That probably will work for pain. Same for your sort of, you know, the, the whole, you know, um, sort of just calm everything down in terms of antidepressants or anti-inflammatories. Um, obviously, opioids, uh, which have caused lots of subsequent problems with with being misused for chronic pain rather than just for acute pain. Yeah. But the principle of all those drugs is none of them were developed to target the mechanisms of chronic pain. They were just serendipitously transferred over from one completely different condition and they sort of got some efficacy in pain the new era is to say right we better understand chronic pain as a thing in its own right not as a continuation of the acute pain symptom which has been the model that has basically been held so in my world in the pain world we've changed that model and in fact the latest international classification for diseases now has chronic pain seven different disorders classified for the first time as can be a symptom still, but also as a disease in its own right. And that's key because it shifts the focus from, let's just fix the thing that caused it in the first place and the chronic pain will go away, because that's the model if it's a symptom. Well, that model has failed us spectacularly, right? So nothing, that model just failed us. That's why we're in the situation one in five in chronic pain, most drugs not working. The new model is chronic pain is the thing in its own right with all its own mechanisms that are new and different. And again, it's sort of obvious when you look at it because the the symptoms different chronic pain patients describe, there's overlap. Whether you have osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, nerve injury through MS or a stroke or going on to chemotherapy or having diabetes with neuropathy. So these shared symptoms, even though these different conditions couldn't be more different, um, show the fact that they must, in that chronic pain state, have shared mechanisms supporting that symptom. So we better understand those mechanisms and those are the ones we should switch off. So that's the new shift and that's the new model and that's going to be really effective and already we're seeing completely new drugs coming through targeting the mechanisms of chronic pain, specifically for chronic pain, not just let's just try and dampen everything down. So that's a sort of global shift. And then within that, of course, what we've been discovering is lots of ways and means by which the brain makes it worse and, and sort of gets itself into a, a wind up. Uh, and a key area that we spent a lot of time working on, and it's been a challenging area to images around the brainstem, a very old part of the brain. And this very powerful system that we have, um, I think evolution gave it you know, to the pain system so that you could really fine tune what type of pain you had depending on the situation you were in. So you've got this, I call it good cop, bad cop in your brainstem. Uh, it can communicate down to the spinal cord in an inhibitory way and stop the signals coming up so you don't feel any pain. So that we know we tap into when you're distracted from pain or in placebo analgesia. But it also has this bad cop that will talk down in a facilitatory way and turn up those inputs and more goes into the brain so it hurts. So that will underpin your allodynia hyperalgesia. And what we know is that people in chronic pain have too much of this bad cop and not enough of the good cop. It's sort of they de-skilled in being able to access that good inhibitory free analgesia that we've all got. And they've got too much of this bad cop ratcheting it up. So to reset that balance is a big part of what we need to do. And you can reset that pharmacologically. You know, these systems are all serotonergic and neurogenergic. So certain new drugs coming through, again, like duloxetine, um, will help that balance correct itself so these are again drugs targeting more of that sort of mechanism another route we've done is 
to answer your question, is the brain stimulations to say we know how the brain is wired up to some of these systems because we've done structural wiring type experiments to find out all that wiring in the human brain. So now we can we can sort of um, set off the cascade, if you like, by stimulating a bit of the brain like the dorsolateral prefrontal, which we know will connect down and drive that deep brain stem system because there's a lot of these external brain stimulation techniques uh, that are not surgical, you know, you can't reach very deeply. So you've got to start on sort of somewhere near the cortex, but could talk down. And that proved to be really effective that, you know, for certain people, we could really drive that system and in a sort of ongoing pain model show that we could modulate and give them analgesia. And the uh, the success of that, measured both by their behaviour, how much pain relief they got, but also by the suppression of neural activity to this stimulus, amazingly was explained by um, how their white matter connections, the integrity of them, which we could measure using another imaging technique called diffusion tensor imaging, gives you a sort of indirect measure of how well are your white matter connections wired up. So again, people whose brains, these are healthy students who just had good wiring between where we were stimulating and the system, they got a bigger bang for the buck. You know, they got better analgesia because they've got the highway, if you like, to talk to others less so. So then you get into questions of, can we plasticize people who don't naturally have a good network and wiring and because this system's really powerful, you know, you get two two points on a ten point scale of analgesia. That's as good as any drug. So if you can just make it work uh, and make people who don't naturally access that make it work better by just you know maybe doing daily stimulation to drive plasticity, drive the wiring changes. You know, this is the approach that you know my colleagues in the imaging centre have done. Heidi Hansenberg and her group and Charlie Stagg in stroke to help rehabilitate people uh, for motor recovery when they're not naturally rehabilitating. You know, people get a little bit nervous about that. I think we're sort of, you know, Frankensteinian in the lab and we're rewiring people's brains through brain stimulation, which is sort of what you are doing. And the argument I would say, you know, when I give sort of lay talks is this is no different than, say, my kids. You know, they're learning, you know, different sports and different musical instruments. They're learning new skills. And as they develop, their brains are being rewired contingent on what experiences they're being given. Um, that's just a sort of socially acceptable way to rewire somebody's brain. You know, why can't we just have the same principle, you know, with some of these brain stimulation techniques, in particularly in patients where they need help? We kind of think classically of that pain scale where you've got the different pictures of faces and progressive yeah. looks of discomfort um, or a one to ten pain scale um, that are actually still quite crude measures. Mm -hmm. And do you think that there are any drugs or modalities for treating chronic pain that have been maybe overlooked because of these crude measures and do you think that the as a kind of corollary to that that the ability to kind of look under the hood in a more nuanced way that neuroimaging gives us might allow us to maybe re-examine some of the older I, I completely agree and 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 another sort of parallel theme of our work for 20 years is to develop imaging um, for drug discovery so we've worked continuously for 25 years with different pharmaceutical companies all the big ones Pfizer and Glaxo and Merck really um, working in a very collaborative way to develop the tool to provide, again for them, something they desperately need. Has that drug got target engagement with the organ you want it to bind to? You know, this is such a simple question, but actually really hard. So imaging can help you with that. Two, is there pharmacodynamic efficacy? Am I seeing any efficacy of that compound on the mechanism I think is relevant? Uh, and that's what we've basically done countless experiments sort of doing the sort of due work of 
reproducibility and sensitivity and dose responsing and etc. in pain models with different drugs that we know how they work and how they don't work to prove in a sort of two by one way this is a good readout this is a reliable readout that will tell you I've got target engagement and I've got pharmacodynamic FSC that is going to be predictive of the drug probably having you know good success in patients and that is desperately needed so this is the beautiful use of imaging as an objective measure not that it's going to be you know replacing ever the subjective you'll always need to have that as your primary outcome um, not least to get approval from the FDA or EMA but most importantly at some point obviously it's going to have to impact the perception but the relationship timing wise between somebody's rating and experience and what might actually be happening in terms of what the drug is doing is complex for some of the reasons I've just described so I can give you many examples of where we can show you with the imaging absolutely rank binding suppression in the area of the mechanism that we know is important but because I've tricked the person, their ratings are still up because I haven't told them I've actually done the infusion. So these mismatches, which we know will go on in clinical trials, where for other reasons their ratings are heightened, but the drug might be working fantastically well, doing exactly what the preclinical colleagues said it would uh, and, and what it should be doing. But the trial fails because the subjective reports are not giving you that sensitivity because they're too crude as to what's really happening. You've also got other subtleties in that the placebo effect, which is, of course, the bedrock of clinical trial design, where you have a, a placebo arm and a drug arm, and you assume that what happens on the placebo arm happens on the drug arm. So you subtract one from the other, and that's the differential, that's the drug effect. Well, again, for a lot of drugs that are going to be targeting the brain, you know, we know a lot about the placebo mechanism. It just hijacks that good cop, which is what you use in distraction. So when you've got a brain with lots of drugs in it, <laughs> you might not be able to mount that placebo mechanism as well which means if you assume that everything that happens on the placebo arm can happen on the drug arm, but it can't because it can't work as well, you will kill that drug every time. And here's the shocking fact. Every drug um, for pain for 20 odd years has failed in the translation from preclinical to clinical. Only one or two have got through. It has mm. been the graveyard for pharma. Billions and billions of pounds have been poured into uh, trying to develop new drugs to treat patients and the failure rate is the worst of all the disease areas um, and it's you know for lots of different complex reasons uh, you know, sometimes it's the wrong target but sometimes the preclinical models not necessarily reflecting some of the symptoms like ongoing pain hard to know if your rats in ongoing pain um, these are hard behaviorally to measure so having more sophisticated ways of measuring things preclinically has been needed behaviorally as well as maybe using imaging there too and then having more sophisticated ways of measuring efficacy at these early stages of phase one, phase two, so that you don't throw out a drug that actually has real potential because you've been misled by a report. And again, we've done some quite dramatic experiments just to really drive home that point. Whilst people have been on IV doses of opioids, yeah, these are really powerful analgesics, but I can make them look as if they're not doing anything, or I can make them look as if they've got double the power just by tricking people's expectations. And again, that's a really good, almost very simple way to prove to people the power of you know the sort of mind and the cognitive states these emotional states in terms of what is the the actual report that the patient will give you as a therapeutic output are hugely important in addition to actually the drugs pharmacodynamic efficacy and to ignore one and just focus on the other you're going to be misled mm. so so i completely um you know support what you say in that there's probably sitting on countless skips some really good drugs there that would yeah. work and now we've got the tools 
you know, really helping. We've just finished a novel drug for a company to help guide them in terms of whether it's likely to succeed in phase, you know, later on in, in phase three and four. But at this early stage, give them the sort of information that just gives them another piece of information so they can make a more, you know, informed decision about whether to take the drug forward or not. And as we build up that confidence and we build up these databases of our knowledge, the more confident we'll be about make, you know, having the imaging being a really powerful tool to make those go-no-go decisions and yeah. to stop throwing out drugs early because you're misled by the behavior. So very new and exciting uh, uh, method in, in neuroscience is to apply functional neuroimaging also to rodents. Mm -hmm. um, Oxford just got a new rodent MRI scanner. Yep. Do you think um, in your field, in the research of pain, uh, this is going to help us to understand the mechanisms and the networks better and maybe to find um, drugs who act on these mechanisms also in the animal model? I do. I absolutely do, Lucas. I think I, we're all really excited actually about what this is going to uh, offer us, not just for my own area in pain, in that you know, I think we've reached a point where we've, in, in our brain imaging in the human brain, in the chronic pain patient brain, you know, there are lots of questions now that we can go and ask in, in a preclinical model. Um, and probe a little bit more deeply in a way we can't in the human. So that's exciting for what I call reverse translation. But also, you know, a lot of the basic science knowledge of pain has been built by my wonderful preclinical colleagues doing all their excellent work there. So to be able to have them almost be, you know, the, the animal imaging being a segue from that basic science, which can sometimes be quite far away from the clinical science, and sometimes you need a bridge, and I do think imaging as a tool, particularly if we can look at imaging in, in you know, rodents uh, and uh, non-human primates and up to man, this is a segue that we can connect these and we can be confident that what we're seeing in all these stages, these models, are consistent. Because if that is the case, and you've got metrics like imaging to give you that confidence, you can be more sure that that mechanism is a key one because we're seeing it in the preclinical model, we're seeing it in the, in the patient um, experimental medicine model, and then we're seeing it in the patient. And then you know, right, well, that's definitely quite key because it's everywhere, so let's now f target that one. So, so I'm excited about what this will offer for pain, but I'm also just more broadly excited about what that will offer for the whole neuroscience community in Oxford, because you know part of the strategy for, for putting this in, because obviously we've got great strengths in imaging in Oxford, so it's a sort of missing piece that we obviously should fill, but it really is an opportunity for lots of people in the broader preclinical neuroscience space who are more at the molecular cellular end to think about, again, how that work might you know, translate into a more systems behavioral understanding um, that might then you know, link to other types of conditions. So again, as a way to draw people from different areas outside of the imaging community into imaging, is very much what we would like to see happen. And um, and so I encourage people to, to use the facility <laughs> as best they yeah. can. <laughs> so Irene, in another interview, you said that uh, you'd encourage everyone to tackle the big questions. Mm. Now, your lab has just started to tackle another very big question in neuroscience. Um, what is consciousness and how can we measure it? So would you mind to give us a brief overview of um, your work on consciousness. Yes, yeah, so um, so I guess the first thing to say is I'm always we're always um, very um, careful not to say we work on consciousness um, because what is consciousness? You know, this is uh, a dangerous thing to say one's doing. So we're keeping it quite focused. And I should say that this area, which has sort of been a, a sideline project for me over the past 25 years, I call it the sort of Friday afternoon experiment. Um, is very much rooted around how anesthetics alter people's states of awareness. 
obviously that's linked to consciousness, Lucas, but we're keeping it rigid because that's testable. So how do anesthetics take people down into these deep states of unawareness? Um, and the interest there many years ago started because obviously there is a link, you know, between anesthesia and what it's trying to achieve in pain. And the, the triad of anesthesia is um, that a, an anesthetist is trying to achieve is the person, you know, doesn't feel pain, they're not aware and they don't move. So, you know, for me, again, it's a bit out of the pharmacological imaging sort of tool where you can use these imaging tools to help drug discovery, but you can also use the drugs to manipulate systems to learn about the networks that's relevant for pain. So you learn about the perception by changing it with analgesics. Similarly, anesthesia is this walloping tool you've got where you are powerfully manipulating how the brain is working such that you degrade fundamental perceptions. And pain's a great one because, of course, it accesses quite a lot of the brain. So if you really want to understand how the brain constructs a percept, which is the biggest outstanding question in neuroscience still. You know, how is it that when those bunch of cells activate, you have this quality of an experience that we call pain or vision or hearing? You know, these are very different things, but we really don't know how that comes about. And here we are every day, all day, putting people to sleep, sliding through this. Um, and we've got, you know, all that happening. We've got this great imaging. We've got really good knowledge about pain and how it's constructed. So if we put it all together, you could do some pretty interesting things because you could use the anesthesia as this powerful manipulation to deconstruct the experience. So that can tell me a lot about pain, it can tell me a lot about perception, then you can see how it's reconstructed when they wake up, but also you can find out stuff about just how anesthetics work and you can develop again, hopefully, metrics that can help anesthetists know when the person for their individual brain is at the right stage to have an operation or to be slit open by the surgeon because they're not going to be aware or feel pain. So for all those reasons, that's why we sort of dabbled with it. And then in these latter years, um, just you know, through very good fortune of, of wonderful people in the group and, and a student, uh, Roshini Mukhnate, who came from Ireland, who wanted to do her doctorate solely in this, having started off with a bit of pain, and we went for it. Uh, and then Katie Warnerby, who's been one of my postdoc fellows, but is now independent. So she's really leading the charge in this area now, in this area, in the group, uh, which is just going fantastically well um, under her leadership. So I'm heavily involved still with all the experiments and still want to do lots of sort of additional ones myself. But what we've been able to do sort of over those years until now, um, I think is really exciting. And I think this is one of the areas that I'm you know, particularly excited about at the moment for the next era. Because what we sort of, again, I'm going to be honest, serendipitously stumbled across was some quite fundamental mechanisms that occur commonly to everybody when they are put asleep by an anaesthetic, but also happens in a unique way to each person's brain. Mm. And what that gives us is not only some interesting knowledge about how people's brains switch off, but also it gives us a biomarker to use potentially in the clinic that for the first time would be a brain-based individual measure of whether a person is at the stage where they're not going to be aware and they're not going to feel pain because all anesthetics to date are using either not a brain-based measure so looking at indirect measures like your heart rate change or your breathing rate change and they're using a population level interpretation of that so they're matching you for your height weight sex and age uh, to that's what everybody your height, height weight sex and age does and you know the oddity for me, having been a person that's worked in brain imaging for 30 years and looked at a lot of brains, is it doesn't matter what your height, weight, sex and age is, our brains are really, really different. And that's the thing you're switching off. So to have something that could give you insight there 
um, is obviously hugely relevant and that's sort of what we stumbled across so we have a patent on that that we're developing and uh, Katie's really leading um, some beautiful experiments now validating that and developing it more uh, so we think we've got a really exciting potential biomarker that could be used in real you know anger in the clinic but also on the sort of more basic science side it gives you a, a, the window that when these, you know, for the listeners, when uh, you go to sleep, um, you develop these slow waves that helps you go to sleep. So when you give somebody anaesthetic, turns out they mount slow waves too. Um, but the amount that they mount is unique to each person's brain, just how much grey matter they've got. So even if you give them more anaesthetic, that's it. They make a certain amount of slow waves and they stay there at a sort of saturation level. And then by doing the experiment with a multimodal imaging, so having the EEG to tell us when the slow waves are saturated, and then the functional imaging to say, what is the brain producing in terms of its response to giving auditory stimuli or painful stimuli, we can see that at this point where people's slow waves reach this point of saturation, the brain from a functional imaging perspective isn't processing those signals normally. So that's the point of unawareness. It's just, you know, if I look at that brain, it's pretty empty. <laughs> so I would say with all the years of looking at brains in pain and all the years of looking at brains in analgesics, they're not feeling pain. So I'd be quite confident you could probably cut them open at that point. Mm. So you've got this interesting translational measure but you've also got this now metric that's quite simple to measure to tell you something really fundamentally important happens in the brain at this point where you reach these saturation because the brain just can't construct a perception we don't know why and we don't know how that stops the capacity for the thalamus to you know send the signal through that's the next era now is to you know pursue the translational opportunities but as importantly is to really get you know into the the, the neuroscience of why and how is it that at this absolute tipping point of reaching the saturation, the brain just collapses and, and nothing from the external world can get in? Um, it's chucking around internally, but it's just not passing the information on. So we need to understand a bit better. And it could be that you know we'll reach a limit with what we can discover with the imaging in humans, and we'll have to go maybe to more preclinical studies to delve a bit deeper. But um, but it's it's just incredibly exciting. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. So if I understand correctly, at the moment you have participants in a scanner and these participants have EEGs or electrodes on their scalp and you image the brain activity and their responses to pain and to sounds and so on. Um, so in a way you have a safety net, you can say, yep. well, when the slow activity saturation is reached, we also make sure in the scanner that um, no pain is no pain networks are active and so yeah, on. Yeah, that's exactly right. Can, yeah. can we already do that in the clinic without the safety net? Yes. Yeah, so we so the idea of the imaging um, is in the sort of development phase to sort of prove the principle that you know the EEG metric uh, that again we're able to get in this multimodal simultaneous manner inside the scanner um, is there because it you know measures this phenomenon and it tells us for the imaging analysis, how to segment the data. So we understand what it means biologically in terms of the percept. At that point, the imaging's done its job. We don't need the imaging anymore. We certainly don't want to be using these sort of fancy functional imaging in a routine clinical setting. But it's done its job now, it's proven the point. Now you can use the more simple measure, a couple of electrodes of EEG in situ, just before the anesthetist is ready to do. And that's what currently Katie is, is doing at the moment with clinical colleagues is in a, in a pre-operative setting, is in the real sort of clinical environment. How technically feasible is this to do this, to sort of you know, put, put these caps on, measure these signals in real time at the speed and pace at which an anaesthetist would like to put the anaesthetic in? Because in these developmental experiments, we had the luxury of slowing that whole process down so we could watch what was happening as the brain went to sleep. So we took you know 40 minutes to put them asleep so that we could sort of take the slow motion video of the brain as it's 
changing the way it's processing those signals that we're bombarding them with, you know, the pain and the auditory. Obviously, inside a real clinical setting, you can't take 40 minutes, it's 10 seconds. So you've got to be able to measure those EEG signals because you don't need the scanner anymore really quickly. And um, it's one of the sort of beauties of Oxford and its wonderful interdisciplinarity. My husband, who's a professor here in climate physics, a lot of the algorithms and things that he develops are quite relevant for what we were needing in terms of being able to actually have this real-time sort of um, Bayesian prediction of, of the signals are going up, 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 and they've reached the saturation point and they're not going anymore. So he developed a little code for us and an algorithm that uh, then was coded up, which is what we're using <laughs> in the real setting now to measure this in real time so that the anaesthetist isn't compromised in terms of the clinical care. We can be confident we've reached the saturation for their brain. And at that point then, you know, if the anaesthetist is still feeling comfortable, we will continue. And then just to verify this again, because we're still in the verification, we're doing the same thing still inside the scanner with healthy participants, just to verify that all lights are out when they actually are held at that point um, in terms of the dose of drug going in when they're just held at that saturation point. So a little bit more validation to be done with the imaging. And then most imaging will be more about answering the neuroscience questions, because at that point we'll be very much, if, if it passes all those checkboxes, we'll really just be using the EG for the clinical translational aspect, not functional imaging. It's really exciting. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah, no, we're really excited about that. Yeah, yeah it's, really it is. Well, there's lots of links with sleep too. You know, with with Vlad and and the work that you guys are doing. You know, it's um, you know, at some point we'll all come together and because you know these things all biology tends to be efficient in terms of how it uses systems and overlaps. Mm -hmm. So there'll be lots of common ground, I think, for us to to work on. So again, the preclinical imaging scanner will afford, I think, some interesting opportunities there too. In, in the interest of time yeah, now, it's sure. probably a good time to ask you. We, we've just got a couple kind of general yeah, questions yeah, 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 yeah. that we like to ask yeah. everyone. Um, and I guess the first one is, um, do you have any pieces of general advice for kind of young scientists that are just entering their careers now and just things that you maybe wish someone had told you when you were first starting out? Yeah, so, you know, I, I do a lot of sort of, you know, um, career sort of mentoring things. And, you know, consistently, I think the thing I remind people of is, you know, one to be aware that this is, you know, you might not realise it, but this is a really precious time when you've got more time than you're ever going to have to really just enjoy the science and follow things that you're curious about. So to be, you know, to be a bit experimental and risk-taking and try a few different things until you find the thing that really grabs you. Because, you know, to do this job, you know, you have to have a certain sort of phenotype and disposition. And, and you know, that is to be, you know, really interested and really curious about something. It's a bit random what most students end up doing their doctorate in. So don't feel you, you sort of have to condemn your life forevermore in what you did your doctorate in. You know, that is a training ground. This is when you can, you know, deliver for your group something of interest, but also learn new techniques, learn how to do the scientific method, uh, learn how to hypothesis test and design experiment, execute it, analyze it, interpret it. These are all skills which you can apply generically to anything. Your job also at this period of time at your young stage going in is to really read around, go to as many lectures, hear as many things as you possibly can, well outside of your comfort zone, because this is the window to really refine your thinking about what is it that interests you. Do you like what well, one? Do you want to stay in science or not? Because you don't have to. There's many wonderful jobs to do where it'd be brilliant if we had more people scientifically trained out there in society. So I think that's something, you know, we as academics haven't been very good at providing. So you need to sort of work with your group leader about, you know, what would be other careers I could do. But if you feel that science is for you, it really is in this window, I think, you know, whilst you're not compromising your time doing your graduate work, is to 
just go to things like the Cortex Club, listen to lots of different talks, find out whether you're the sort of person who's a scientist who wants to understand things at a very building blocks level or more at a behavioural systems level. We all fall into different things and you need to explore which one's for you because to sustain your life and interest, you've got to sort of, you've got to click with something. And that might take, you know, a, a first postdoc or even a second postdoc. It's less easy, I think, for you guys. It was easy in my day. You could chop and change a bit what you worked on. Um, I think it's more difficult now for you to do that. So you've sort of got to be mindful of that early and allow yourself to be open to different influences or ideas uh, and just then follow follow your gut reaction. And I guess the only other second thing I consistently say is just don't worry so much. I find a lot of, again, it's different in my area and your area. A lot of the young people are very worried about, rightly so, you know, you know, when are they going to get tenure and secure and etc. Um, and, and overly worrying about that, which is down the road. Try and make a decision that is, you know, as best you can see what's going to make you fulfilled and happy and enjoy it for the next three or four years. And as long as that decision isn't going to shut lots of doors down, obviously, but keep doors open and maybe open up the new ones, it's probably the right decision. Because the one thing I can tell you now, sort of at 52, 30 odd years in, is you can never predict what's going to come your way. I could never have predicted as an undergraduate, you know, graduate here, how my life would have worked out. There was just no way that that was predicted. So don't worry so much about it. It sort of will work its way out. Your job is to sort of love what you do <laughs> um, and then it won't go wrong. Uh, to give yourself that chance to be open to new ideas and new ways of being you know, influenced. Uh, to be honest with yourselves about what it is that makes you interested in driving. It might not be a scientific career. Um, and then not to overly worry about what might be in five years and have it all locked down. That'd be boring. So enjoy <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. Are there any fields outside of your own that you kind of look to for inspiration? You gave a kind of great example there of your husband being a climate mm. scientist and he's helped you with your particular mm. interest and that kind of cross-pollination between fields can be really, really productive. I was wondering if there are any fields in particular that are outside of pain or outside of neuroscience that you kind of go to as regularly? Yes, um, there are. I mean, within neuroscience, you know, I, I, if I was going to sort of start again, um, I think I'd be a developmental neuroscientist um, uh, and, or, and or a computational one. I think that's sort of, I can probably do try and do a bit of that sort of in this latter phase, next phase. But the sort of developmental neuroscience, I think it's just, I just, I'm so blown away by what has been discovered right now. I just think it's hugely exciting because I think what we've learnt and we're learning at a neuroscience level at the adult end, and you could take UK Biobank and all the brains that have been imaged and how we're seeing now, because we've got thousands and thousands of brains, how your life journey influences your brain function structure. So all that development that's happening from birth to adulthood, my goodness, we're just scratching the surface of things like education, physical activity, nutrition, you know, all these things. So to be a developmental neuroscientist, we could answer those questions would just be huge. So any young person, you know, have a think about that if you haven't. Outside of it, you know, I'm still drawn, you know, um, you know, because it's sort of where I began at school. And actually, I was really keen to do uh, astrophysics, but sort of actually back in my day, I was told girls don't do that. So, um, so that was it. But, you know, I, I am drawn to the sort of physics and the stars and, the, and that side of things. So I, I do love and enjoy watching, you know, any new documentary or program that's coming out that's telling us about, you know, what's being discovered out there in the galaxies and life on other planets and just the way these guys measure stuff you know I've got a couple yeah. of colleagues here uh, you know um, who you know Catherine Blundell and others who you know have these amazing telescopes and they're discovering things about you know 
the the planet outside of us and i think that yeah. just gives you a sense of calibration you know you just hear as a little blip and uh, there's a whole big world out there so those are it's areas kind of that excite me yeah. force perspective when you're working on that it scale does. of things yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And then kind of as a, I guess, a related question, it would be, are there any things that you like to do outside of science just to kind of refresh yourself or, or kind of enjoy? Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm, I've got three children, so that keeps you pretty busy. Uh, I mean, they're growing up now. So my eldest daughter, Colette, is 22 and my son, John, is 18 and my other son, Jim, is 13. So, you know, the 13 year old is still around for a few more years needing care. So that that's fairly uh, still full on in terms of outside of life is obviously, you know, uh, having having the family and enjoying them you know as as they grow up um i was always really sporty so i was you know really sporty when i was an undergraduate and graduate here so although it's less easy to find the time with my travel i do always you know uh, try and fit in a gym session i've run a couple of marathons recently oh, nice. uh in order to, to sort of get a bit of fitness i play i like to play tennis um you know i used to be you know mountaineer and rock climber so you know these days i just you know running bit of cycling bit of tennis with my boys they now beat me which is really depressing <laughs> as is the handing over it's it's not good so i've yeah. still not quite resolved myself to that but anyway so yeah so sports is always good I, i'm a pianist i play the piano quite a lot so um you know music is something i enjoy i go to concerts you know my daughter she's not too embarrassed to take me to Beyonce concerts and mm. Lady Gaga so I enjoy that sort of thing and um, yeah no I do I enjoy myself a lot outside of work <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I always you know enjoy holidays or, or think you know gosh yeah I could yeah. I could very easily occupy all my day with things I enjoy doing so yeah although I you know most of my life is dedicated to obviously you know the research and the sort of other sort of you know administrative roles I have in terms of the department um, I still do make time for life and I think you know children which is you know a decision we took to have you know and, and the path that we've had um you know they really do help you know you, you do sort of you know when you leave work you leave work I'm not one who brings work to the home yeah. I absolutely just switch off so I'm very good at just compartmentalizing my home life and my work life uh, and I think yeah. that's important to do yeah so you just mentioned your departmental role um and soon you're going to take up another role mm -hmm. um, you're going to be more warden of Merton College which mm -hmm. means you're going to uh, be heading an institution which is responsible for the undergrad education of a couple of hundred students and um, some uh, hundred other uh, graduate students. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you combine these very eminent administrative positions with your research and why did you choose um, not to stay a pure scientist yep. but also take up these political functions? Yeah, so it's, it's you know, um, is a long, long answer, but you know, this is sort of I've always, from quite an early stage of my career, had these administrative roles in terms of managing, you know, so um, helping, um, you know, whether it's been directing the imaging centre for ten years, uh, running the anaesthetic department, running clinical neurosciences as a big merged department, and now taking on the role at Merton. And um, you know, it's it's not a, it's not a simple answer as to sort of why I did it. I think this is an organic thing that you sort of you know, you're presented with this, you sort of you do it because there's a sense of obligation somebody's got to do it and often as a scientist you don't know whether you're going to be any good at that sort of thing because it's not the case that just because you're good at science uh, which is often where it starts you've been given these roles um, you're naturally going to be a good manager uh, or enjoy it um, for me it turns out luckily um, that you know I, I'm reasonably good at that and I really enjoy it so you know being able to you know look back and look at these things that I've been a part of helping you know both look after but develop so say the imaging center and the department you know and and all the things that have come about because of that role that you've taken i'm really really proud of and i'm as 
rewarded and as proud as that as I am of any personal you know research paper um, or glory whatever that means so I really do get a lot of personal satisfaction out of contributing in a good citizenship way to the greater good and seeing people like you flourish and develop your potential and that's for me that's not for everyone that works for me so sort of having started that almost you sort of get untwisted into these jobs initially and then you realize actually I quite I'm quite good at it I or I don't make a mess of it um, and I quite enjoy it you then sort of next thing you're doing another one and I think also as a woman there's not many of us so if you happen to be a woman too then obviously you do feel a sense of um, obligation is not the right word but duty that actually you know we should step up and 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 show other women <laughs> and men that women can take on these roles and and, and be a success with them uh, the Merton roles come up out the blue, um, you know, so that is a different role. And again, that um, I, there's a sentimentality to it. In one instance, it's my old college. It was wonderful to me taking me on as an undergraduate and graduate. So I would very much like to give back for this next phase of my life. Um, I've really missed, you know, in the department I'm in, we don't really have that much contact with the undergraduates. So to have that closeness with the rhythm of the year and the undergraduates and all the different subjects is something I'm really excited about connecting with again for this sort of next phase. Um, and also, you know, I've been 25 years in medical sciences, you know, and I love my colleagues dearly, uh, but we're all pretty similar. Um, so to have that option to mix with colleagues, um, you know, in terms of the governing body who are drawn from the humanities and the social sciences, you know, will just be you know, amazing um, and, a, and a wonderful opportunity. So to, to sort of have a opportunity to sort of take your turn in this long 700 and over 50 year history of this yeah. institution and look after it but also keep it moving forward keep it being part of how we must keep this place fresh and competitive and excellent um, you know this came up and again it's one of those things I couldn't have planned for it it came up for me the timing and everything seemed about right and they felt the same so together we'll see how it goes and, and I think the scale of it is a fairly similar to the scale of running the department and um, I've sort of been able to maintain the research throughout all of these roles. Um, I've been able to compartmentalise quite well and maintain that. And Merton have been extremely good in terms of giving me protected time um, around you know, the same sort of level, maybe a little bit more actually than, than running the department. So ask me in a year, but my expectation <laughs> is it, it shouldn't make any difference to the current level of output now. Um, so that's the hope. We'll Great. See. You just mentioned well, the... Uh, very few uh, women in yeah. uh, strategic yeah. positions, yeah. Uh, especially in science. Now, in Oxford Neuroscience, that seems to be an exception because yeah. um, we actually have yep. some very eminent women, mm -hmm. um, Kia Nobre, yep. who is heading the yep. uh, Neuroscience um, mm -hmm. Steering Committee, mm -hmm. and Heidi Johansenberg yep. as head of the Imaging Center, mm -hmm. for example. Um, so is there something special about the structure at Oxford that allows women to get into these positions? And what would be uh, your strategy to um, encourage women or allow women to uh, take up more of these positions? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, I think it's just terrific that we can see, you know, within the neurosciences community that I think also, you know, we've pulled together really well uh, over this past decade in Oxford, that we've got, you know, as you say, plenty of women, fabulous women like Kia and Heidi, you know, they couldn't be better, you know, role models and mentors. And I think I think we all, Kia and Heidi and myself, would all say the same, that you sort of, you underestimate how important it is just to have a woman up there as a sort of role model and figurehead, what difference that actually makes on the ground. I think we've latterly sort of realised that because you're just getting the job done. Um, but it it it's noticeable that when there has been for whatever reason, a woman put in charge, what you see in terms of that particular, say, department or division or unit, there just seems to be an awful lot more women who are progressing through. 
And then, of course, you've got the succession planning and off you go. It's sort of success breeds success. But it sort of starts with planting a few because that does seem to make an impact in terms of, again, I think younger women thinking, I can do it. I can actually progress to that. I can combine those roles with other roles. Um, Because I think there's been a lot of negative messaging historically that it's just not possible or you're going to have to sacrifice X, Y and Z. So just showing that there's a different way to do it is very empowering. And I think just neurosciences, for whatever reason, that's just happened there first. But I am seeing that in other pockets of the universe. And of course, having Louise Richardson as our VC, you know, is hugely impactful. And that's impacting, I can absolutely say, at at sort of, you know, the professorial level, you know, that, that really is important for us to see and and the success that she's making with that role um so that's given again another boost of confidence i think for the women in oxford but you're seeing you know you've got karen o'brien who's head of you know the humanities division you've got just lots of women there's now going to be you know an extraordinary number of women heads of houses as well in this next year Uh, and again you know next sort of demographic age coming in to take on those roles and, and it is this model of success breeds success. You've got to start with a couple, and then once that goes, it sort of doesn't go backwards. And of course, we've had the Athena Swan agenda, where we've all been really encouraged in medical sciences to think about our cultures and to address them, you know, targeting the women, but I think more broadly now also for the young men in terms of, again, how and what they should be doing to come to the table to meet us halfway. Because yeah, I think for a lot of us, we feel like we've done a lot of you know, effort in this as women, we've had to fight the battles, you know, we've empowered ourselves as best we can. And now, you know what, it's time for the men to sort of take on some of the workload in terms of redressing. So we look to people like you to sort of call maybe colleagues out when we see they're being inappropriate um, or making biased decisions. Um, It's a collective job. Um, So that's sort of, I think, where we are. So no magic answers. I think these things just sort of, yeah. But there's more. To, there's certainly more work to do, you know. And and, and I think in Oxford are doing really well on a national level and an international level. We still have problems, um, absolutely, and we have problems both in terms of how grants are awarded, um, with real biases there, how CVs are assessed. Um, you know, there is objective data to prove yeah. there is a bias still. Um, and and of course there are other, you know, uh, areas too in terms of you know again diversity more broadly. You know, this is this is another front we've got to again continuously work on. I guess the the last question is going to be something of a, a kind of topic jump, but um, kind of going back to the science a little bit, mm. but one that I'm quite interested to hear your answer on, and that is that are there any kind of uh, generally accepted ideas or ideas in science or neuroscience that are generally accepted that you think we should maybe be more skeptical of? Oh, gosh, um, there's probably loads. Um, I mean, yeah. the, the British Neuroscience Association did a brilliant symposium, you know, their Christmas symposium yeah. um, that they run and they would take a sort of interesting topic. So last year it was neuromyths. Um, and so, you know, basically, I, I would agree with every single one that was detailed there, <laughs> if you want to look on. It was brilliant because what they did is just took a myth and a myth buster. Because of the nature of neuroscience impacting broader areas of society beyond just it goes wrong as an organ that can you know get ill um obviously it, you know it is what makes you who you are and so it and it's what drives society so how societies work how they make decisions you know how we drive you know our legal system or our punitive system or our stock market and all these things you know the way the brain works um so it lends itself easily for 
mad hypotheses being hijacked and then once the media sort of get a hold of it and they run with it because it's it sounds credible and you'll always find some data to give it scant proof so i think yeah. neuroscience is particularly subject to that problem i would say and so yeah. i would point to those neuro myths that were covered because <laughs> there was about eight of them <laughs> they bust everyone so it's really good if, you, if people if the listeners haven't gone to it go and go and look up okay great I guess uh, if there's any sort of lasting take-home messages that you want to leave the listeners with. Um. Just, you know, well, one, you know, to thank you both uh, for this opportunity, but just to really enjoy your science. Just make sure if you keep enjoying it and keep loving it and uh, keep yourself fresh. It is, you know, it is a privilege to do this job. You know, we're extremely fortunate to have the job we, we have. And so to, you know, keep, keep looking on the bright side of science. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Prof. Aaron Tracy. Well, that's the episode. I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as we did. As usual, if you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to the podcast or leave a comment. Your hosts for this episode were Lucas Croner, Paula Condos, and myself. Our theme music is by Eves Blue. And if you'd like to find out more about Cortex Club, then go to cortexclub.com. Until next time, goodbye for now.